D-Web technologies have been on the radar of extremist entities actually for quite some time, but the limiting features and related limitations of audience reach have been restraining the exploitation by such groups. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're exploring the decentralized web, sometimes known as the D-Web or Web3. My guests today are Inga Trautig, a senior research fellow at the University of Texas, and Clara Tsao, co-founder of the Trust and Safety Professional Association and senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. We discuss what the decentralized web is, its potential benefits for users, and whether terrorist and violent extremists are exploiting these technologies. We also consider future threats relating to exploitation of the decentralized web and how tech companies building this technology can mitigate this by developing trust and safety mechanisms early on. Firstly, what is the decentralized web? Let's hear from Inga. At the heart of the decentralized web or the D-Web is the notion of actually re-decentralization. And this always includes two aspects of the internet as we know it. So decentralization of power structures and decentralization of technologies and operations. I would like to give some context because since its creation, the internet has steadily evolved in a centralized manner. And I think most people who use the internet now just take this for granted. We have a few extremely powerful companies and they can basically enforce decisions and most significantly control data of the users, so data of all of us, to a pretty large degree. And criticism about decentralization has been brewing for a long time, but has really become vocal, and it comes from various fronts, right? We have privacy advocates, we have human rights campaigners, we have scholars in the global south, antitrust legislators, and many of them argue for a re-decentralization to get out of what they see as an unfavorable situation mainly to the users. It's a movement really whose members share ideals, namely re-decentralization, but very different approaches in how to achieve that. So a subset of DWEB advocates, for instance, they really say that cryptocurrencies and blockchain are the most important technologies to achieve decentralization. They usually not refer to the DWEB, they call it the Web3. But others that are also part of this, like, you know, movement for re-decentralization, they say that we don't need these technologies in order to rely on self-administered servers, peer-to-peer technologies, and really break down the power structures and the internet as we know it right now. So the DWEB can mean different things to different people, but it will always have to do with decentralization with regard to power structures online, with regard to technologies, probably both, and varying suggestions of how to achieve that. Many supporters of the decentralized web believe it's a chance to take back control of our data from big tech firms. And Inga says that's one of the reasons the D-Web is so attractive to its users. Well, basically because it's about regaining control, right? On the D-Web, users have regained control because these immense databases that have been created by internet companies over recent years and that function via centralization are basically removed. So on a D-Web social media service, you have more impactful choices around where and how your data is stored, who is able to participate on the platform, how the platform is moderated. But I would like to briefly comment on why the D-Web is attractive to everyone relying on the internet as we know it, the Web 2.0. And here I would argue, well, it isn't really attractive. 
mainly because the advantages in terms of data control do not outweigh or counterbalance the inconveniences of participating in the DVAP. And this is actually a point that also matters when we hone in on extremists and the DVAP. So the DVAP is attractive to users. You can regain control. It certainly carries the potential. But a fundamental change would need to happen first, namely major shifts for many people around the world about how they perceive the web, what their expectations are, and what their commitments would be for using a decentralized version of the web. Clara points out some other perceived benefits of the decentralized web, including the secure and efficient transfer of money across the globe and protecting freedom of speech in countries where the internet is censored. Now when you have decentralized data, you can build applications on top of it. You have less points of failure rather than a single point of failure. And it will make it a lot easier for a number of services to run more efficiently. A lot of people think about decentralized technology also in the realm of uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain. And so an example would be uh, imagine um, sending money overseas to, you know, let's say your family overseas. And normally without uh, decentralized services, you would have to go to a bank and then you would have to wait for that bank to open in that local time for you to actually pick up that money, you know, money transfers orders. And now there are also intermediaries in between that might charge an additional fee. With peer-to-peer technology, there is the added security using cryptography to be able to allow money just to be directly transferred from one party to another without the middle services in between. And people often see this as much more efficient. So those are a couple of examples. Some of the benefits of decentralized technology might include, imagine countries where people might, uh, there might be governments that are doing dictatorship and they may want to control what people see on the internet there. So they can then today go to you know, Facebook or Amazon or Twitter and say, can you please take this down? And sometimes it's a compliance and must order um, and internet might be actually censored. And this is particularly dangerous where there might be uh, horrible dictators that are trying to push a point of view when an election you can imagine, and they just don't want anything to show to um, people in a country. So unfortunately, there are countries today that deal with a lot of internet censorship. And so when you have a decentralized internet infrastructure that does allow for some some great information that might be around human rights or other issues to be upkept. An example of this was when the Turkish government a few years ago uh, decided to shut down Wikipedia. Uh, copies of Wikipedia were upkept through a service called the Interplanetary File System, IPFS, which is an example of um, the use of peer-to-peer technology. So we've considered many of the benefits of the decentralized web, but is it also being exploited by bad actors such as terrorists and violent extremists? Let's hear from Clara again. Every era of the internet, whether that's web one, web two, or web three, you can imagine the more adoption there is, the more bad actors there will be. I think it's similar to you know early days of the web, people assumed that pornography was gonna take over. In fact, there were members of Congress that were very early on thinking the entire web was going to be weaponized by pornography. As we've seen over time, there have been good uses of the web where today people can find knowledge, and then there have been horrible use cases. And pornography did come onto the web, web one, web two. Some people see it as a good thing, right? Like sexual freedom. Other people see it as not great, right? For certain age categories or 
certain religious or particular worldviews. Uh, in Web 2, what started to also happen is as there was more and more people on the web, terrorist groups started to use it, right? And so we've already seen this right now with the work that you guys are doing at Tech Against Terrorism. Uh, a number of terrorist groups have taken Web 2. They've created groups on social media. Early on, ISIS used Twitter to really recruit people overseas. Um, we've also seen the use of white supremacists, extremists, um, use a number of Facebook groups and forums to recruit from each other. And that is no different from the era of Web3 or the decentralized web, where as we see more adoption and more people starting to use these services, there's going to be more bad actors. What's a little bit more challenging is the kind of takedown that happens in Web2. So for example, if the Daily Stormer, right, was taken down by Cloudflare back in 2017. Uh, it's a white supremacist extremist site. It was a lot easier for services to say, I, I do not want to support you. I'm going to take down your site. But um, with decentralized services, um, it's a lot more challenging if um, white supremacist extremists or terrorist groups, they have one piece of content, they have the chance to forever, you know, upkeep it in, in different pockets. It is still possible to take it down, but it's just a lot harder than the whack-a-mole game that we um, often see in Web2 where, you know, large companies owning data might be a bad thing. Um, sometimes it might be easier to take it, take it down at scale, but it's still very, very challenging because there are still so many pieces of content on it. Inga recently co-authored a paper with Laurent Bodo about the decentralized web titled Emergent Technologies and Extremists, the D-Web as a New Internet Reality. Their research asks how extremists are exploiting the D-Web now and potentially in the future. It also considers the implications of a decentralized web for extremism and what that means for society as a whole. Inga and Laurent reviewed the literature on content moderation and extremism on the decentralized web, utilized data partly collected by Tech Against Terrorism through the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform, or the TCAP, considered evidence from far-right extremists and Islamic State supporters who were experimenting with the decentralized web, and conducted interviews with other advocates, critics, and developers working in this space. I asked Inga to tell us more about the findings of her research. I would like to talk a bit more about the data collection and analysis because that's really the most important point to understand how we came to our main conclusions and the main findings that I can quickly reiterate in a second. And also some of the listeners would be maybe interested in doing similar research. At least that's what I'm hoping for. So the way we went about this was basically for the right-wing extremists. We used OSINT techniques to find 30 telegram channels that fit our criteria then scraping all the channels and then creating, you know, a custom Python script and turning the unstructured data into structured data. And then what we really focused on were all the URLs. So in the end, we had a sample of almost 144,000 URLs for our right-wing extremist data set. And then we solely focused on the domain names and counted how often a particular domain was shared and then sorting it by the 50 most shared domains. And that's where the qualitative analysis came in. And we actually looked into, okay, where are those different domains leading us? What are the sources? Where are the outlinks going to? Some of them we could easily recognize, like main social media companies, but others we needed to look into a bit deeper and actually figure out what that is. And then in the report, that's really what our main findings focus on. is like, like XYZ percent of the URLs are news domains, XYZ percent are decentralized web services, XYZ percent are social media domains. 
And with the Islamic State dataset, we basically went about it the same way. We got a dataset from you guys from Tech Against Terrorism, which already contained almost 32,000 URLs. But then we went on it the same way as with the right-wing data to analyze the URLs. And this report is really an exploratory nature. So it's directly linked to the fact that the DWEB currently is more of an idea than a reality for most people around the world. I mean, I learned a lot doing the report, and I think that probably most of your listeners have heard about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies before. But I, I'm wondering if many people could actually list a variety of like social media decentralized web services. And that also seems to be the case for the extremists and terrorists that we've been looking at because they are not relying on the decentralized web a lot. And I'm saying that because that's based on our findings, like the main conclusion, I would say like the overarching conclusion from our research is that the web technologies have been on the radar of extremist entities actually for quite some time. But like the limiting features and related limitations of audience reach have been restraining the exploitation by such groups. Like the top level findings of the right-wing extremist data are that first, DWEB services are not significantly represented in the URL analysis. In fact, it's less than 4% of all URLs led to a DWEB service. The majority of those outgoing links of the URLs actually led to two major social media platforms. The right-wing extremist sample shared more unreliable news and blogs than more reliable news sources. And kind of the fourth and final top-level finding with regard to the right-wing extremists is that archiving services are used just as much as DWEB services. And that's a finding that we similarly found with the Islamic State data. So the research suggests that violent extremists are not currently exploiting DWEB services to a significant extent for the dissemination of propaganda. But why is this? When you look at the threat assessment that we're doing, we're basically saying that DWEB services are at a medium risk of being exploited by those entities because the current exploitation that we found is very low, right? The numerics that I just represented that lead to DWEB services are really low, but it must be emphasized that the decentralized web is far from being as popular as current existing infrastructures, right? So the question for us is really if the DWEB picks up, but obviously you can argue, I think we also argue in the report itself, that the DWEB is not necessarily needed to enable extremist entities to host, distribute, and control their content as required services to achieve this already exist. Yeah, there are other ways that they already exploit and that extremists can rely on more easily than decentralized web services necessarily. And a final point, maybe with regard to the right-wing extremists, we all know the term alt-tech, right? So the adoption of alternative platforms, more fringe platforms, hosting right-wing extremist content. And giving this partially decentralized setup already, there's definitely an argument to be made that there may not be a need for DWEB services as fringe platforms might satisfy right-wing extremist users to a large degree. As we discussed in our episode on the dark web, migration to these technologies is often unnecessary, as there are currently better and more accessible alternative platforms available to terrorists and violent extremists. However, we are still seeing a slow shift towards terrorists and violent extremists exploiting D-Web technologies, such as hosting content on peer-to-peer services. Given there is no centralized server, is it possible to actually remove this content? Clara believes where there's a will, there's a way. 
specifically around whether it's impossible to remove content um, in peer-to-peer services. I would say, no, that is not true. It is possible to remove it, like I said, but it's just a lot harder. Imagine Amazon Web Services having one centralized server, a government saying, I don't want this website in my country. Go take it down, Amazon, right? And that is a lot easier when the government has one source to go to for content removal. And it's a lot harder when uh, there's a network of a number of people upkeeping the service to go to every single one and say, take this down, take this down. It is absolutely still possible to remove, but it's just a lot more challenging. One of the things that has also been really interesting in Web 2 and also in Web 3 technologies is hashing databases. And so there's a lot of innovative technology that allows people to detect content at scale and then be able to scan a database to remove it. Uh, But like I said, when there's increased security and when there's multiple people upkeeping a service rather than somewhere centralized, it absolutely is quite more challenging to lock it all down. And when people say it's impossible to remove, I would say it's when it's just really, really hard to chase everyone down. There, there probably is, you know, things that are quite impossible just because of the number of different people upkeeping something. But anything is is honestly possible to <laughs> to shut down at some point. And we've all seen that happen with, you know, the shutdown of LimeWire and other services that people for a long time thought would kill the music publishing industry, right? And so um, it's a trade-off. And I think it's also being able to really continue to build innovation uh, to make sure that the really hard and bad problems don't don't tend to happen or scale. Let's move now to consider what extremist exploitation of the decentralized web might look like in the future. Back to Inga. Well, we don't know because we don't know how the decentralized web itself is going to evolve. But what I do want to emphasize here is that extremist or terrorist exploitation of technology and hence the ways in which those actors differ from preferences of average users is small. Like, I'm really convinced of that. And I think it was Brian Fisherman who said probably a few years ago that terrorists use or at least try to use the internet in pretty much the same way as other people. But for the sake of it, let me like paint as a dark scenario. So in theory, extremists could utilize DWAP, file hosting services, launch websites, employ video streaming services that host violent extremist, terrorist, other harmful content. And as things stand, the entire idea obviously behind the DWAP and how it functions is that control over a site and its underlying data lies with the entity that established them. So in other words, it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to take down any content or a given website themselves. And that sounds pretty terrifying, like basically no control and extremist content everywhere. But from what Lauren and myself argue and assess with regard to this emerging DWAP technology is that it's not that dangerous and it's unlikely to offer a safe haven to extremist entities, at least in the short term, due to basically its practical inconveniences and the way that they can already rely on other stuff. What has become clear in our interviews with some of the people who work in the space, so we spoke to people from the Oxfam Privacy Tech Foundation, OPTF, is that there are already people also working in the space, at least on various technical and design strategies to mitigate such risks. One of those people working in this space is Clara, who's done a lot of thinking about what decentralized web platforms can do to mitigate these risks as more people start to use the D-Web. Clara says one of the best things platforms can do is to build a trust and safety team early on. 
I think there has to be Number one, the thinking early on by a lot of the companies building this technology on what could possibly go wrong and not necessarily address it later on when things go terribly wrong and it's already horribly adopted by the actors that we don't want to use that technology like terrorist groups. So a lot of times what happened in Web 2 was most of these issues were only addressed when it became a crisis moment. Unfortunately, companies just didn't care. They were so focused on scale and profits that they really didn't address these until users started com to complain, right? Or governments started to lock down. That was what happened for so many years in major social media platforms when extremist groups were radicalizing people. And at some point, governments started to intervene and say, please take this down. Or they, you know, they try to address issues like election security and Russian bots. So uh, I think with with the rise of Web3 and decentralized tech, uh, number one is to make sure you think about trust and safety early on and for companies building the technology, hire teams. Number two is also for users to recognize that the technology can be weaponized and also to flag flag that for companies early on as well, because a lot of people forget that user flagging is such an important part of moderation, content moderation. It's not just people at companies doing this work. It's also the communion culture that we build on the internet that is a part of that story with us. Uh, I think number three is definitely for much more technology and innovation to be able to address some of these needs. So uh, right now, um, I also serve um, in the role as a founding officer of the Falcon Foundation, and we're building decentralized file storage, but we have also been supporting a organization called Moomeration Labs, uh, which is run by someone who was uh, working in trust and safety for a very long time. He was the former GC and head of trust and safety at Medium. And um, he is now running this company, but this company um, re is really building tools for us to think about what we can do to tackle different kinds of content challenges that might happen. And we're trying to do that early on <laughs> before there's even more mass adoption of our technology and network. So there's a lot of things that people can do proactively. I think the worst thing to do is just not even to think about it or to ignore the problem completely. Um, we know this, like I said early on, for every era of the internet that we've seen, bad groups will use it. And it's it's not preventable, but we can definitely make sure that it's reduced in its spread and that we can build the best technology to address it early on. And also we are also thinking about these issues as that product is being baked or built along the ride. The fourth is along that innovation path to also educate developers. A lot of peer-to-peer -peer technology are upkept by a community of open source researchers and developers that are also building the technology. And so to also educate them on what trust and safety is, some of the problems that have happened in the past, Inga agrees that tech companies need to work together to understand and tackle any potential threats emerging from the D-Web. The main policy implication is really the need for technology companies to cooperate towards, you know, looking at terrorist exploitation of existing and newly emerging technologies and platforms. And I think there's also hopefully an impetus for tech platforms to do or tech companies to do so because the tech backlash is really prevalent in 2022. And the Web 2.0 social media platforms would, I think, be well advised to open up about past mistakes, engage with developers of the web platforms about lessons learned, like just at least with regard to this like specific focus on terrorists and extremist exploitation. 
because extremist actors, we've said this a few times now, are unlikely to entirely abandon big players such as Meta or Telegram anytime soon. So it would really be a good strategy to stay vigilant and pass on information to DWeb services and platforms if they can, for instance, pick up on a significant redirection or potentially even allow law enforcement if extremist entities direct largely to their own websites, for example. I think overall, it should really be about coming together and finding solutions. Clara adds that policymakers need to make sure they're properly informed about the decentralized web and how it works before trying to regulate it. Even with today, uh, with terrorist content and centralized servers, governments are still figuring out what's what's black and white, what's right or wrong, what new groups are forming, what keywords they're using, right? And so if they write in policy, we should not allow this keyword, people could make up nicknames, right? The other thing that's happening is there's a lot of new spaces that terrorists are using technology, right? So I remember even a few years ago, there was a service that allowed for people to watch movies using VR headsets. And there were people that decided to screen uh, ISIS recruitment videos in in these virtual um, spaces. And I guarantee you, no government even recognizes those companies and knows to look there, right? And so I think it's in part educating uh, policymakers about how a technology works. They barely understand most social media networks. We've all seen that uh, very uncomfortable back and forth between Mark Zuckerberg and members of the U.S. Congress. That was a meme for a while uh, for how little governments understand technology. I think peer-to-peer services and decentralized technology is a layer even more complex for a lot of policymakers to wrap their heads around because, it, one, it is way more technical to there are, there are just a lot of policymakers today in most governments that are much older, and they've never actually used the technology firsthand. And three, the actual user experience of most decentralized technology is quite hard. The layer for policymakers to get involved, we're still quite far from it. Um, I think the most dangerous thing is for them to actually assume they know what it is when they don't understand, and then to make rapid policy that harms everyone trying to do good along with accelerating the bad actors. Uh, The bad actors are obviously all very smart. Some of the terrorist organizations that have used the web, uh, like ISIS, had some of the most sophisticated use of advertising technology back in the day. And so, you know, it's it's so easy for these groups to outsmart another. I think the challenge is making sure that we can protect users, we can educate policymakers, but also we don't accidentally pass policy that was meant for good that actually does more harm. Here at Tech Against Terrorism, we work closely with decentralized web service providers, alerting terrorist content we find on their platforms and supporting them to develop more effective policies. We also contribute to research in this area through providing data to academics such as Inga and to develop our own analysis of this threat. If you'd like to read Inga and Laurent's paper, you can also find a link in the show notes. A huge thank you to Inga Trautig and Clara Tsao for their input in today's episode. Don't forget, if you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. This is an OG podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced and edited by Philip Aguiu. Sound design by Oli Guiu. Music by Rowan Bishop.